from uh, in an article on Time. I don't know why I read this or where I found it. Is it timelike.com is online by uh, an article that was written by a guy by the name of Aziz Ansari. Do you all know who that is? All right, the guy in Parks and Rec. All right. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that Aziz is not a Christian, but his thoughts in this article, I thought, were really helped me begin to quantify this issue of people that are single, that want to be married, but aren't. So he compares himself in this article as a very indecisive man to his parents that had an arranged marriage. Okay, he's from, his parents are from India. He asked his dad one time of what the arranged marriage process was like. And so he tells this story that he decides he wants to get married. His uh, parents, his dad's parents, tell him, all right, that's fine. His parents go and find three local girls in the community, and he sort of shuffles them in front of his dad, and he looks at the first girl, and then the second girl, and then the third girl, and he decides on the third girl, I'm going to marry this girl. What? Actually, no, hang on, back up. He, he looks at the three girls, and he, of the third one, his now mom, he says he wants to talk to her a little bit longer. So they talk for 30 minutes, 30 minutes, like, Thirty, three, zero, like a sitcom Seinfeld show, all right, that long. And at the end of that 30 minutes, they decide they want to get married. And one week later, one week, all right, they get married. 35 years later, they're still married. Aziz talks about this. They're, they're still married, and not only are they married, Aziz says that they're very happily married. And he says that they're often more happy than a lot of the non-arranged marriages that he has experience with. Now, then he takes that experience and then he compares it to his own experience, to his own personality. He tells the story of trying to find a place to eat while he was on tour. He's a comedian uh, on tour in Seattle. So he's looking for a place to eat in Seattle. The first thing he did was text four kind of foodie guys that travel around a lot to see what they think. Where should he go to dinner? That's the first thing he did. Then he checked this website called Eater. Never heard of it. Uh, to get their recommendations to see where he should go to eat. Then he checked Yelp. Then he checked GQ Online. And finally, he made his decision on this Italian restaurant. Uh, only problem was it only served lunch, and he was too late to get to it. So by that time, by the time he's gone through all of this process, uh, he, by that time he had to leave to go to his show. And so he wound up having to eat a peanut butter and banana sandwich on a bus on the way to the show. And then he had this stunning observation. This is his words, quote, it was quicker for my dad to find a wife than it was for me to find dinner. And he goes on to talk about the modern dating scene and all the options that are now available to singles. Singles today have more dating options than ever before, and yet they're marrying later and breaking up more than ever before. And Aziz suggests that that may be just part of the problem. And so I took that article and I sort of squeezed it through a Christocentric lens to try to see what's true in it. And so we're going to try to think about this idea that we're talking about uh, that he sort of introduces into our minds. So kind of set that in your mind for a minute and turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. Set that in your mind. We're going to work through 1 Samuel 16 just for a minute to kind of frame these ideas. 1 Samuel 16. So this passage here is the passage of uh, Jesse. He's going to, uh, sorry, Samuel is going to meet with Jesse to anoint a king. That's the context here. Saul hasn't been a good king. That's sort of the context. Jesse's going to appoint another king. God's telling him that. So take a look there. Uh, I'm going to drop all the way down to verse 5. 
Samuel showing up, comes to Jesse, and he said peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So one of his sons is going to be king. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Well, surely the, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping sh- the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then the Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up to Ramah. So we get to the heart of this passage, I think, in that verse 7. Again, that second half, For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So just as the Lord did with Israel in choosing them as a small and insignificant people, he does here with David when he sort of, helps us understand that we're not to look at the outward appearance, okay? Even though David was ruddy and had great eyes and was handsome, don't look at that, God's saying. That not, has nothing to do with it. Zero. Don't just notice his stature. Don't just choose folks because they look like a king, because they, they have a right fit on the outside. That's the way the Lord says. That's the way that the, the world looks. That's how man looks, but that's not how... The Lord looks. I think we could say, too, that that's not how the Lord's people should look either. The Lord looks on the heart. So the scales of the world would have us to measure, most weighty, the external. The scales of the Lord would have us to measure the internal. And so this passage is sort of like that story of the old barren Sarah, when like no way she's going to have kids, and she does. Or like, again, like Israel, that are like this small, insignificant people, and yet that's the one God chooses to become his people. This passage, the heart of this passage, I think is preparing us for the coming of Christ the King. The King of Kings, born of a common yet godly woman named Mary in a barn. Eventually mocked, made fun of, beaten, battered, bruised, and crucified on a cross for sin. This passage prepares us for that. It gets us ready for that. We can think about Jesus hanging on a cross when the soldiers mock him and say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so using the words of the Lord there in 1 Samuel 16, these soldiers that look at Jesus hanging, they start thinking, he lost. He was just a common guy, had a short little following for a few years, and he lost. 
that's even, I think, that's what the world sees. That's what, the, that's what man saw on the outside. I think we could even say that even modern day, bringing it into modern day, there's a lot of unbelieving Americans that are thinking the same thing about we Christians nowadays. Well, they lost the culture war, you know, they lost. Poor Christians, we won. They're going down. They have a bad message. I think even Christians are maybe perplexed by some of this. But the centrality of our hope, the definition of love and liberation, is in the external appearance of loss, but set in the larger story of redemption, it's all gain. Because we know on the third day, Christ raises from the dead. Hallelujah. And it is the resurrection that helps us interpret all that came before it. The resurrection shows us that there is more to what meets the eye. And so there are spiritual realities that are deeper than the external. And so we, brothers and sisters, we have been given eyes to behold the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have been given that. We have been given eyes to see as the Lord sees. So of all the people in the world, we should be the one set of people that can look beyond the surface because our hopes are set on realities that often cannot be seen with the naked eye. We've been given eyes to see that stuff in ways that the world has not. Holiness is far more weighty than a veneer of some temporal, external happiness. So if you are in Christ, that has got to grip you. That has to be the interpretive lens by which you see all of life. Holiness, Christ crucified, resurrected, his people going to heaven, as you heard Garrett say. There's got to be greater weight in hearts that are captivated by Christ than there is in external attraction or external sort of things that you like. We have to learn to see as the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, the Lord looks on the heart. You probably know where I'm going with this, don't you? All right, let's go ahead and jump there. So in your assessment of marriage partners, brothers and sisters, you have to see as the Lord sees, not as man sees. You have to see as the Lord sees when you're assessing partners, when you're even going out with those partners. Or to say it bluntly, internal matters of the heart have to weigh as much or more than what level of attraction or sort of idiosyncrasies you may have in relation to a potential spouse. So here's when it gets a little sensitive, if it isn't already. So here's what I have seen in my sort of small experience. People look at other brothers and sisters in Christ around them, and here's what they tell me. Well, when they look at other potential Christian people that maybe they would go out with, they would say, well, they're sort of a three out of five. And so they're hesitant to pursue them. Why? Because they think they can do better. And year after year goes by, they date here and there, but it doesn't really go anywhere, and they get frustrated. And the months tick by, and the years tick by. It's sort of like Aziz looking for that restaurant in Seattle. We are hesitant to commit because we are too concerned that by committing, we might limit our options. We are immobilized by that mythical greener grass on the other side. And so immobilized by the many options that are made available to us from dating websites or to the dozen or so people in our lives or to that person that might just show up at church next week 
We don't ask. We don't commit. We're crippled by consumerism. Crippled by consumerism. And even when we do act, we are slow to continue pursuing someone at the first sign of risk. Because in the back of our heads, we're thinking, you know what, there just might be someone else that's sort of less risky, less sort of uh, problems that I have to deal with. Maybe they're more attractive. Maybe there's another person out there that will be a better fit. So they, even when they start to commit, they back off quickly, thinking there's maybe a better option out there. And years advance with godly men and women existing alongside of one another, wanting to marry but going home alone, frustrated and disappointed. And maybe even some of them start to blame God. So brothers and sisters, this approach to pursuing marriage reflects more how man sees than it does how the Lord sees. Now, I'm, I'm going to get to that whole settling question. I know it's in your head. Are you telling me to settle, Nathan? I'm going to get to that in a minute. But for now, let me just be clear what I'm not saying. So I know what... It, some of you are thinking, all right, so Nathan's just telling me I just need to go find another Christian and just get married to him. It's not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying. I am not saying that you should pursue a relationship with someone just because you're two Christians and you go to the same church. I'm not saying that. Attraction is. I'm not saying is, it's not important. I'm just saying it can't be paramount. I'm saying that if, if sort of maybe part of the evaluation process, it's sort of, that's sort of maybe 40% of the assessment phase, and then there's these sort of 20% things that sort of like your personal interest, I'm saying that the attraction stuff maybe can come down, and this stuff can kind of come down. So we've got to work on that. Attraction is not unimportant. It just can't be paramount. For those that think that it is paramount or, or it has too much weight, that's the calling card of the culture. That is not the calling card of Christ. So let, let me talk about this whole idea of being crippled by consumerism. Let's talk about that for a minute. Our generation is one of the first generations in the history of the world that can travel pretty much anywhere it wants to go. We are one of the first generations in the history of the world that can go to school pretty much anywhere we want to go. We can buy almost anything we want to buy on the inter- internet. We can live pretty much anywhere we want to live. We are a unique generation in that sense. There's this story uh, told by a guy named Barry Schwartz that wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice that kind of deals with this issue, not a Christian. And he tells this story where uh, he, he wants to go buy some jeans, and he hasn't bought jeans in a long time. So he goes into the story, store and asks for some 3228 jeans. And the employee responds by asking him if he wanted slim fit, easy fit, relaxed fit, baggy fit or extra baggy fit and did he want stone washed acid washed or distressed and did he want them to be button fly or zipper fly regular or faded and he responds by saying i just want some jeans just wear the regular jeans the employee says let me go ask for some help about that See, we think that having many options actually serves our freedom when it's equally possible that the numerous options that we have in our lives, or more particularly the numerous dating candidates, actually can serve to cripple us. This is what I mean by crippled consumerism. We are a generation of men and women that have a hard time making decisions. And there's many reasons for that, but one is we we are afraid to make the wrong choice. 
And so either we make a choice and constantly live in regret, thinking the other option may have been better, or we don't make a decision at all. We're crippled by consumerism. So let me be clear. I am not opposed to online dating, or as I have learned, online meeting, like you just meet, you don't date online. So like on, I'm not opposed to those things. I'm not opposed to the globalization of the world. But I do think that they have served to harm a lot of relationships or potential relationships. When we live under the sovereignty of God, laboring to know God and make God known, we should be men and women of conviction. that Make choices and move into them. We should believe, like what we hear about what A.W. Tozer says, I love this quote, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? That should, be a, that should be the way that we are, the kind of way that we think and we act. So be aware, brothers and sisters, that the plethora of choices may be causing some of the difficulty that you find yourself in. I use this quote almost weekly in my life as a pastor from Augustine. I love it. Augustine says, love God and do what you want. A lot of people want to focus on the second half of that. We've got to think hard about the first part. Garrett talked about that. So don't wait for him, for God, to speak to you specifically about every subjective experience in your life. Consult the word, pray, seek counsel, and act. Don't be crippled by the what-ifs of life. You cannot live that way. Kevin DeYoung, again, another quote. By the way, these couple of these quotes come from a little book called Just Do Something. Really helpful little tiny book. Not about singleness, but about a lot of things. He's touching on this. He says this. He says, quote, expecting God through our subjective sense of things to point the vi- to, sorry, expecting God through our subjective sense of things to point the way for every decision we face, no matter how trivial, is not only impractical and unrealistic, it's a recipe for disappointment and false guilt. The reality is, no matter who you marry or if you marry, it's going to be hard. Garrett is exactly right. Let me amen to that. The grass is never greener on the other side. You want to know what the first thing, I asked permission for my wife, if I could share the story. You want to know what the first thing that my wife's mom said when I asked her and her husband for their daughter's hand in marriage? First thing out of her mouth, true story. Can I have you, I want to marry your daughter. Super nervous. First thing out of her mom's mouth is, you know she's not always going to look like that. Yes. But you know what? Do you know what she was saying? She was saying, you got to see as the Lord sees, not as man sees. Like, you got to love her. What she was saying was, you got to love her more for her heart than just what she looks like. Now, my wife is beautiful, but, like, there's got to be more to it. That's what she was trying to communicate. There's got to be more to it than just the way she looks. The things that sort of you like, the sort of external things you like about being around her. It's got to be more than that. That's what she was trying to say to me. This is the testimony of my marriage. It took me a while to figure this out. I've been married for 12 and a half years. And I, 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 I talk about this in premarital counseling all the time. About year five is when I started to figure out the way marriage is supposed to go. 
The joy of my marriage was not, this is what I learned, the joy of my marriage was not in getting her to do for me what I desired. The joy of marriage came when I realized it was the very opposite. When I started to primarily serve her joy, as a result, my joy began to be realized. And that's what love is, right? Love is not flowers and balloons and chocolates and sappy movies, all right? God's word tells us what love is. This is love, 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God. But he loved us and gave his son to be the wrath quencher. So that we might have joy in God. That's 1 John 4.10. If I, if I marry you, I'm probably preaching that verse at your sermon. Because everybody's thinking about love. That's what love is. Thinking about the other is better than self. We'll talk about that in a minute. The formula in the gospel is going to be the same as it relates to all relationships. Some of us here need to stop focusing on the myth of the perfect man or woman and realize they might just be sitting next to the perfect person every week. And maybe they already know them. Maybe not. But you... But, but we've got to understand you haven't seen them. We oftentimes don't see them. Because maybe they don't quite fit the way that you want them to fit. All the sort of things that you've come up with. So here's the bad news. You're never going to find the perfect guy or gal. Never happen. Won't ever happen. But here's the good news. Things get much better the sooner that you stop looking for perfection and you start looking for sanctification. Randy Golden, I think I saw her. She's here. She was thinking about coming up to D.C. Famous, well, story between the two of us. She was thinking about coming up to D.C., and I told her that, like, listen, this is about, if, if, you, if you want to think about your happiness, it may not be, you may not be happy in Washington, D.C., but if you want to be holy, it might be a really good choice. So sometimes people ask, this is a great little pastor trick, by the way, so if one of your pastors does this, you should know they're, what they're doing. Sometimes a lot of people ask us, what's the will of God for my life? Should I, what's the will? Should I choose that person? Should I date that person? Should I take that job? And we'll say to them, I know the will of God for your life. R- what is it? The will of God for your life is your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So I know, guys, I know a couple that is married now. With a wife cheated on her husband. And the husband never left her. And he fought for her with the gospel. Forgiving love. Fought for her. And there were all kinds of consequences to this relationship. All kinds of consequences. But he never left her. He was very, very hard. But she clung to Christ and he clung to Christ. And it took a lot of hard work. But their marriage to this day is a testimony to the power of God. So if the gospel can work in that marriage, then it can work through your having a hard time with, all, with how tall or short somebody is. Or whether or not they have too much hair. Right? You can work through those things. The gospel, if it can work in a marriage that was falling apart and bring it together, it can work through all these sort of things that we sort of build up that we think that we need. See as the Lord sees. Not as man sees. Look into their heart. See what you can find. And if you are even moderately attracted to them, and they have a heart for Christ, 
Maybe you should give it a shot. Maybe it won't work out. It's okay. Right? I mean, it is okay. You're going to have a hard time in every single relationship that you have. So don't be crippled by consumerism, thinking that there's always going to be something better. Believe that the most important things in a relationship are the same things that sweeten your relationship with Christ. Those are the things that are going to make your marriage great. Lift up those things when you evaluate potential partners. So let me answer the question now. Okay, Nathan, what about that whole settling thing? Are you telling me, Nathan, just to settle? Settle for the three. Is that what you're saying, Nathan? Address that for me. Well, friend, the very idea of settling assumes what I just referenced. It assumes there's something better. And why is it you think there's something better? I mean, it's possible that there is. I don't know. Maybe there is. But why is the three out of a possible five that love Jesus in front of you settling? Why? If you started to work harder at seeing as the Lord sees, weigh the matters of the heart more than the matters of preference, how might that change how you understand someone as settling? How might that change? The thing that makes relationships great is not two people finding one another attractive, nor is the litany of their common interests. The thing that makes marriages great, makes any relationship great, is the commitment to think of the other as better than themselves. That is always what makes a relationship great. Romans 12 talks about this, that the mark of Christians is this other orientation. We are created in the image of God. Christians recognize that, that like Christ laboring for the good of the other is ultimately what makes any relationship flourish. That's the thing that's most important. The way that we know that is because that's how, that's how we got married to Christ. He took a less than desirable spouse... I, I, I was preaching this earlier to my wife, just to sort of, and I said, took an ugly spouse, and she said, don't say that. She took, so a less than desirable spouse, all right? Christ took a less than desirable spouse, and we rebels, and he loved her by giving his life for her, and he taught her, and he was patient with her. And those of us that have walked with Christ for a long time can testify that while it isn't always easy being married to Christ, it's sweet, it's profound. And that's what always makes every relationship better. I was talking to this guy last week or week before after church and our services. He's been coming around for about a month. And he said to me, he said, Nathan, I don't know if you know this, but there's something special here at this church. And I said to him, I said, you know what, like, you're right. But listen, there is something special here, but it's not unique. All we're tapping into is the greatness of Christ and his powerful love that is other-oriented, that's trying to think about the other as better than self, to build them up in Christ. That's happening not all the time, but it's happening a lot. And so anywhere in any church that's happening, it's special there too. And this is the secret to a great relationship. Not your preferences, not necessarily attraction, although that's not unimportant. It's thinking of the other as better than yourself, seeing as the Lord sees. That's how our relationship with Christ came into being. That's how we should have healthy marriages, healthy relationships. And we Christians should know this better than anybody else in the world because we've been given eyes to see it this way. 
And so that needs to be carried out in our assessment of potential marriage partners. Be willing to see that what you understand to be a three might be a 29 on a scale of one to five. Once you actually did the hard work of seeing him in their heart and not just this other stuff primarily. So this idea of settling goes away when we begin to see like that. To see as the Lord sees and not seeing as man sees by looking at the outward appearance. No, not that. So I'm willing to promise you that if there is what you think to be a three in your life when it comes to external matters, if they love God and are willing to try and love you, that's a big thing for some of us, then ten years from now, I can promise you, you will not have buyer's remorse. I promise they're willing to love you, you're willing to love them, you're not going to get 10 years from now and go, you know what, should have waited for that next guy or gal down the street. Because what will happen is, 10 years from now, insofar as you're pursuing the gospel with each other, what's going to happen is there's going to be more beautiful things that are start bubbling up that are more meaningful. Like my wife's mom says, don't just love her for what she looks like. That stuff's going to start bubbling up, and that's going to be the thing that you love between the two of you, and it'll make it great. You will never be thinking about, ah, wish I wouldn't have married this guy or gal 10 years ago. You'll not think that way because you're thinking more about what the Lord values and weighing those things more than the peripheral things. Be willing to set aside some personal preferences in favor of the weightier matters of reality. Don't be crippled by consumerism. Don't believe there might be something better if there is something of interest in front of you. Act in accord with the gospel. The more that we do that, not just in dating but in all of life, the more I think that you'll find deeper joy. All right, what happens once you enter into one of those relationships? So we're going to go next. It's going to be really brief. What happens, like, if you do that, you're going to try to pursue that. All right, you're in there. Now what? You weren't crippled by consumerism. You saw as the Lord saw. Guys, you walked across the room and asked her out. All right? What does it look like to see as the Lord sees and not as man sees on the outward appearance? So, seeing as the Lord sees in the relationship and not as man sees. So if you're committed to working hard at seeing as the Lord sees and looking at the heart at a, of a potential spouse instead of seeing like man and primarily evaluating the external things, it's going to have a few implications. A few implications. It's going to inform the way, the way that you talk to one another in the relationship. It's going to inform, if you're doing that, if you're seeing as the Lord sees, not just motive noticing all the sort of external thin stuff, but you're looking on the inside, it's going to inform the way that you talk to one another. It's going to inform, uh, it's going to inform what you talk about. And maybe most importantly, it's going to inform the way you evaluate how the relationship is going. See, it's fine if you want to stop seeing someone because they like the eagles and you like the redskins. You can do that. You just need to know what you're doing. So I've already talked about this a bit, so I'm not going to linger here. But if your relationship is constantly being evaluated by asking what they can do for you or sort of your personal preferences sort of coming in, then once a marriage begins, you're going to have a hard time flipping the switch to the design of marriage, which is thinking of the other person as better than yourself. Did you catch that? So if you're constantly evaluating the relationship and... and and once, let's say you do get married because, you know, that you've got these, pro- these sort of set of problems you don't really like, but you're willing to kind of go through it. It's going to be really hard for you to actually do what married couples are supposed to do and stop thinking of yourself primarily and start thinking about them. So go ahead and front load that. Get it into the dating relationship. 
So in a relationship, seeing as the Lord sees, not as man sees, means Philippians 2, 3. So when I do premarital counseling, I drill this verse into folks. I had a pastor that said to me one time, I've never forgotten this. He said that almost all the problems that come into my office are a failure to obey Philippians 2, 3. So I drill this into folks. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility think of others as better than yourself. Man, that has been so prophetic for me. Virtually every time someone walks into my office with a problem, it's a failure to obey Philippians 2, 3. You do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility you count the others better than yourself. If both persons are doing that, and not constantly evaluating whether or not you like how they dress or what kind of jokes they laugh at, then you both will be presently surprised as to how things go. That's, that is, if your scales are measuring things as the Lord measures them. So I feel the need to kind of keep mentioning this, so let me say it again. I'm not saying that you're not allowed to evaluate another person. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you're not allowed to have a problem with whether or not they like the Redskins or something. I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm just saying you just got to know what you're doing and make sure and put the proper weights and values in the proper places and determine the relationship, how it's going based off those things. Don't force a relationship to work if it's not working. But if it's not working, ask yourself why it's not working. And is it, is it things that are in the realm of the way that man sees? Is that's what's happening? Just sort of think about that. You know, it is possible that a relationship is not working even in the realm of godly things. But I doubt that most relationships that are having trouble are having trouble because of that. I suspect that many relationships fail to thrive because both parties are primarily looking to their own interests. And so if the relationship doesn't work, then break up as the Lord would have you to break up. Not as the worry man would have you to break up. Okay? So don't do it, man. I can't believe I even have to say this. Don't do it over text messaging. What in the world? The guy I found out asked a girl out over a text message. Like, no, no. So, sorry. Can I get back? All right, can I pause? Uh, yeah. Man, Facebook, no. Like, not there. No. Be Christian adults that care about the other person. Have a mature and rational discussion that is primarily interested in the good of each other if it's sort of not working out. And while it's understandable that there could be some uh, awkwardness between the two of you, maybe even if you go to the same church, it shouldn't be so much that it can't be overcome. Christ <laughs> overcame the greatest divide that has ever existed when he brought sinners back to God. So that awkwardness exists. I'm pretty sure that could be overcome if Christ can overcome our sin. Amen? I'm going to stop here. We can talk more about this in a bit. But I want to end by coming back to that introduction about Aziz and his parents. The success of Aziz's parents and the failure of Aziz's relationships reveals something that many of us don't take the time to notice. It reveals that the secret to love and prosperity in a marriage is not initial compatibility. It's loyalty. Say that again. The success of Aziz's parents and the failure of Aziz's relationship reveals something that many of us don't take time to us. It reveals that the secret to love and, and prosperity in a marriage, in a relationship, is not initial compatibility, it's loyalty. Loyalty to God, 
And loyalty to his word are the thing that leads to lasting compatibility. Say that again. Loyalty to God, loyalty to his word, as lived out amongst two people, that's the thing that leads to compatibility. So we Christians have listened too much to man as it is represented in Jerry Maguire. You complete me. No, that's not the gospel. You just heard Garrett preach this, right? Christ completes us. That's it. Christ is the only thing that will make you complete. Talk to anyone that is married, that loves Jesus. They'll tell you that. So Aziz's parents have made it, having only known each other prior to their marriage for a little over 30 merits, not because their profiles fit, but like any successful marriage, they have made it because they have more confidence in the things that make marriage work. They have made it because they have more confidence in the things that make marriage work. Not what they think will make their marriage work. Their confidence is more in the institution, not in each other. So our confidence as Christians is not only in the institution, but the God of the institution and two people living out that design. Did you catch that? So like the things that make me most confident that a marriage is going to work, a relationship is going to work, is not because I think that my wife is going to be good at obeying all of it, but because I trust God and His design for it, and that's the stuff I trust, and so insofar as I'm doing that, she's doing that, it's going to be all right. And that's how healthy relationships work. It's not trusting whether or not we're going to fit, but it's trusting God that His design works. And then the fruit will come. So Aziz's relationships have failed because he's doing the very opposite. As is illustrated in his search for a restaurant, he is more attentive to having his own palate satisfied than he is in satisfying the palate of another. In other words, I believe that one of the critical reasons why there are so many singles today in healthy churches that don't want to be single yet don't pursue one another is this. Many of them are often seeing as man sees and don't know it. They have more confidence in compatibility than they, do to, than they do the loyalty of two people working together in the manner that God intended for marriage. Tim Keller says this great, has this great quote in Meaning of Marriage, an excellent book. He says this, quote, A common vision can unite people of very different temperaments. And that vision, of course, is God's design. Christians should understand that more than anybody else because we have the gospel. And so that's my call for us, that that in seeing as the Lord sees on the heart, not as man sees on the externals, having greater confidence in the Lord and His designs, relationships will be formed and will thrive because they trust Christ and His design for their joy, for your joy. Don't be crippled by consumerism. Trust God. See as man sees. Value those internal matters of the heart more than those other things. Don't get rid of the other things. Just value those things more. And trust that God in his design for a relationship, those things, insofar as they lived out, that's going to be the thing that will make it work. Not whether or not how compatible you are. 